Hello, everyone. I'm Bill Raggio. I'm a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies and editor of FDD's Long War Journal. And this is Generation Jihad, the podcast that covers what used to be known as the global war on terror and what we call the long war. Today, we're joined by Caleb Weiss. He's a senior analyst at the Bridgeway Foundation and a newly promoted editor at FDD's Long War Journal. Uh, Caleb's also my co-host here at the uh, Generation Jihad. Uh, welcome, Caleb. Awesome. Thank you for having me again. Although I guess I can't really say thank you anymore since I'm a co-host. That's right. That's right. And uh, our very special guest and good good friend of Generation Jihad in the Long War Journal, uh, we have Edmund Fitton Brown. And Edmund, I think, is probably our most, uh, I, you have to be our most frequented guest here at Generation Jihad. Edmund is a uh, former British diplomat and was the amba British ambassador to Yemen. And he served as the previous coordinator for the United Nations Analytical Support and Sanctions Monitoring Team, which uh, covers the Islamic State, Al-Qaeda, and the Taliban. Welcome back to Generation Jihad, Edmund. It's great to have you. Thanks, Bill. Great to be back. And, uh, and good to see you, Caleb, as well. You too. Yeah, exactly. We got a lot to discuss today. Of course, we're going to uh, go over the latest report uh, from the sanctions and monitoring team on the Islamic State, Al-Qaeda, and the Taliban. Um, there's some interesting items in this report. You know, I, I think Caleb and I, we were having a discussion. A lot of the, the report is understandably so. Um, there's a lot of information that is, uh, there's continuity from all the reports and you get these little seeds of new information that come on. And some of these, at times, they seem to be buried in there. We're going to highlight some of those those items that we'll say are are buried or just, they seem to be one-off mentions they perk up the eyes of, of people like me and Caleb and, and Edmund, of course. And so we'll, we'll get into those today. And uh, we're going to break this down. Essentially, we'll start with the report that mentions Al-Qaeda, and then we'll move on to the items that mention the Islamic State. There'll be some overlap in between, but let's jump right into it. Uh, and the first, I think to me, one of the, first, the most interesting items here is the mention of Saif al-Adil. Um, I'm going to read right from the report. Uh, this is what the sanctions and monitoring team says about Saif al-Adil, who is believed to be the successor to Ayman al-Zawahiri, the second emir of al-Qaeda, who, of course, was killed in a U.S. drone strike in Kabul while he was sheltering at a Haqqani network, which, of course, is the Taliban safe house in the Afghan capital. So here we go. Quote, member states' predominant view is that Saif al-Adil is now the de facto leader of al-Qaeda, representing continuity for now, but his leadership cannot be declared because of al-Qaeda's sensitivity to, to Afghan Taliban concerns, not to acknowledge the death of Zawahiri, and the fact that Saif al-Adil's presence in the Islamic Republic of Iran. This gets, uh, Caleb and I, I believe we discussed this on a prior podcast or, or two. Um, gentlemen, what do you think? We'll start with you, Edmund. I think this is a, this is significant. I mean, it's, it's not something that's surprising to us. We, we've all felt that Saif al-Adil would be the leader, but the, I think the mention in the report that member states are, are seem to be in agreement on this one is, uh, is significant. I think it is significant, Bill. Yeah. Um, you know, we expected he would be the uh, successor. Um, we should be in no doubt that, that Zawahiri was killed, as you said, uh, even though, of course, the Taliban claim that there's no evidence of that. Um, and why this is significant uh, 
is that it now creates a dilemma for al-Qaeda and to some degree a dilemma for Iran and for the Taliban. Taliban were embarrassed by the fact that Zawahiri was killed in Kabul, clearly as their guest or as a guest of part of the Taliban. And um, they've denied it. And that sets the narrative. So al-Qaeda can't acknowledge that Zawahiri is gone because if they did so, they would be uh, effectively contradicting the, the Taliban's narrative. Um, so we don't know if al-Qaeda want to acknowledge that Zawahiri is gone, but they can't. And, uh, and, and they've been putting out a series of new videos uh, of uh, Zawahiri's new in inverted commas, videos. Uh, of course, they're all old videos, um, but you know, they, they're clearly sort of playing the game as expected by the Taliban and sort of you know, maintaining the fiction that Zawahiri is still alive. Um, that also is going to suit Iran because they're not going to want the additional focus that would be drawn by the fact that not al-Qaeda's number two, but its global leader is in Iran. Um, and so again, that's uh, that, that you can you can see how this sort of allowing Zawahiri to sort of um, live on uh, maybe suits both Iran and the Taliban. Uh, but this is a problem for them because uh, the you know I think everybody accepts that Zawahiri was killed. I think the American uh, account of that was uh, fully convincing, um, and. Uh, the way that people react to this um, will have to factor in that reality as well. So if Saif al-Adil is running al-Qaeda from Iran, as the report says, um, that does increase the political risk that Iran is taking by hosting him. And the Iranians must be giving some thought to whether this is prudent. But equally, um, if he were to leave, where would he go? Because the Taliban have been embarrassed once. They might not want to be embarrassed again uh, by having the leader move to Afghanistan. The report notes that it, say, it says that one member of state rejected claim, the claims, reports and assessments regarding the presence of any al-Qaeda affiliate or dependent in the Islamic Republic of Iran. That's a direct quote. Um, do we have any idea who that one member state who's rejecting the reports that the any Al Qaeda leaders? We know that there's numerous Al Qaeda based on U.S. designations and and other reporting that there are uh, Al Qaeda leaders inside of Iran. Edmund, does Iran get feedback? Do they get input on this report being a member state of the United Nations? So it's it it, it is it is a sort of a default practice of the monitoring team not to cite which member states they're quoting. And as you see throughout the report, there's a lot of mention of uh, member states say, or some member states say, or in some cases, one member state says. Uh, and that's that's a kind of a, a, that's a, that's a, that's a standard practice. It can be uh, reversed if a member state specifically asks to be cited. Um, and then, of course, uh, the monitoring team's happy to do so. Um, I think the I think Iran is on the record as having denied the presence of uh, Saif al-Adil in Iran. And so um, I, my, my, my assumption is that if there were another member state that had denied it, uh, then the report would probably say um, some member states or you know, more than one member state or two member states. So um, I, my, my interpretation of the report is that this is Iran that has denied it. As well. And Caleb, what are your thoughts? Do you believe we had this discussion before? Do you believe that the fact that Al Qaeda is not 
mentioning or hasn't acknowledged the death of its leader is has that posed a real problem for Al Qaeda, or is this a is this a manageable problem for Al Qaeda? Well, I, I think Edmund hit on on this pretty masterfully. But the only thing I could add to that is that you know this is you know the public facing response. You know, Al Qaeda can't publicly admit this. Al Qaeda can't publicly say much about this. You know, due to 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 the you know the the implications that Edmund you know weighed out, but. I think behind the scenes, there's there might be a different story. I mean, you've noticed that none of Al Qaeda's major branches or affiliates mentioned anything about Zawahiri being dead. They didn't eulogize him. Uh, they've never, you know, publicly broke from AQ. You know, so it seems to be, you know, business as usual for most of AQ across the world, which seems to imply that they they might have had, you know, either behind the scenes discussions on Safe being the new leader. Uh, or they knew that was happening, or they knew that would be the case, regardless of whether or not Zawahiri, you know, is dead. Uh, I, I think that's a discussion to be had of, you know, the distinction between what they can and can't do publicly and what they're doing behind the scenes. And I think certainly behind the scenes, they all expected the continuity of Saif al-Adil, uh, or at least a continuity in leadership that, you know, precluded them from saying anything about this. And I think that speaks to a certain, you know, command and control aspect that Al-Qaeda has that, you know, despite Swahiri being dead, no one mentioned anything. No one has said anything publicly. Yeah, I, I agree with that, Caleb. I mean, it's it's a problem for them. Would Al-Qaeda like to eulogize Zawahiri? Would they like to recognize his role in the absolutely. global jihad? Yeah. They absolutely would. Would they like to announce their new leader? They absolutely would. But the fact that we really haven't seen any break in the rank and file or within the affiliates tells me that it's it's a problem, but it's manageable. One that it's they're, that they're dealing with. Them. Yeah, it's a public problem, but not an internal problem. It's a PR nightmare. Exactly. Yeah. There's one additional uh, point about Safe al uh that is mentioned in this report. And it, it, I'll again, I'll quote from the report just because it's uh, – easier for me to do here. Uh, it says, Harris Aldean then, quote, aspires to attack the West, but faces difficulties in securing financing. Harris Aldean, of course, being Al-Qaeda's branch in Syria. One of the one member state indicates that Harris Aldean receives direct instructions from Saif al-Adil. So what we're talking about there is direct command and control from Al-Qaeda's leadership in Iran to provide instructions to an Al-Qaeda branch inside of Syria. Uh, Edmund, I'll start with you. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I'm glad you picked this one up, Bill, because it's really important, I think. Um, it goes back to before this the period of this report, um, the association of some of the um, Al-Qaeda leadership present in Iran with Al-Qaeda in Syria, which is another name by which people sometimes refer to Harass al-Din. And so Saif, of course, has been in Iran for years and has been involved in this. But Saif wasn't always the leader of uh, al-Qaeda in Iran. Um, previous leader of al-Qaeda in Iran, you know, the sort of the, the previous number two to global al-Qaeda was Abu Muhammad al-Masri, uh, who was uh, killed in Iran uh, a couple of years ago. Um, and uh, even with him gone, Saif isn't the only significant um, al-Qaeda leader in Iran. You've also got Abdurrahman al-Maghrabi, who is the al-Qaeda number three. And there's a little entourage of these guys who are sort of working together. So this is like a little leadership cell uh, in Iran. It was always important. It was important when Zawahiri was still alive uh, because Zawahiri was the kind of leader who worked consensually and 
uh, you know, consulted with uh, his uh, leadership colleagues. And of course, Zawahiri's ability to communicate in Afghanistan was not always easy. Uh, whereas the guys in Iran uh, were was like they, they were very they were a very important relay point uh, for Al Qaeda, and they had a particular interest in what was happening in Syria, and that is even more important when you consider that one of the most likely centers for Al Qaeda to redevelop a threat, an external threat capability, is northwestern Syria. It is that uh, Hurasuddin uh, presence in northwestern Syria. Now they haven't successfully done so yet. But it is another reason why this uh, should be of concern if there are instructions going from uh, Iran, from al-Qaeda in Iran, to that potential threat cell in Syria. Yeah, and the U.S. has, has targeted that Harris Aldean network pretty hard over the last several years. And so I think that has made things difficult. But, you know, we always talk about the ebb and flow of jihad. There's ups and downs, the fact that that cell, well, really thousands of fighters, I would estimate, of Harris al-Din operating inside of Syria. The report says anywhere from hundreds to thousands. Uh, we'll get into the estimates of the reports in a, a little bit later, but um, I always think the uh, think they're a little bit underestimated myself, but understand understanding um, this, you know, it's a benchmark figure for us to discuss. Caleb, any any thoughts on Saif al-Adel's uh, direction? of the network inside of Syria? I mean, just a minor one, and this isn't necessarily exclusive to Syria, but I think the implication that he is still communicating with Haras Adin, you know, opens the door up to, is he communicating with others? And the answer is most likely yes, which gets into what we were talking about earlier of, you know, the continuity of leadership, no one said anything. It, it seems likely that they're probably the guys in Iran, as, as Edmund stated, always significant, always part of the global command, likely still communicating with other branches. Uh, so I think that's, that's the most important thing. If even though that you know we have this, the UN confirming that he's talking with guys in Syria, the implication that this is happening across the world, I think, is the most interesting thing to that, and it's probably true. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with both what with bo both Caleb and Edmund had said here. I'm going to add one thing. Look, the, Iran isn't just looking the other way while this is happening. It's very. I I would bet that the IRGC, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. Uh, is monitoring the communications between Saif al-Adel and what's happening in Syria and what's happening in other theaters. So Iran isn't just serving as a safe haven for these senior al-Qaeda groups. They're, they they have direct uh, knowledge of what's happening. And I think that's what this makes this element of state sponsorship of terrorism extremely dangerous. This, you know, with with Pakistan serving as a safe haven for for al-Qaeda over the years. I don't think that the Pakistani government was, or the Pakistani military was directly involved in al-Qaeda's operations, or it was, I think there was a, there, it was opaque as to what al-Qaeda was doing. And, and as a matter of fact, you know, as, as much as my criticism for the Pakistani state goes, um, they, sure, they supported the Afghan Taliban and, and I didn't mind the Pakistani Taliban in the beginning, but Al-Qaeda was a real problem for the Pakistanis, and they did make efforts to eliminate them. So we have to give them some credit for that. It was selective, of course. But in the case of, of Iran, it's a, it's complete safe haven, and um, that's extremely dangerous, and it's what's allowing Al-Qaeda to survive in its leadership in some cases to thrive. I think this is a good point to move over to uh, the, the element of the report on Al Abu Iqlas al-Masri. He was an, is an Al-Qaeda leader. 
um, who operates in Kunar and Nuristan. He was captured by U.S. forces in 2010. I did a lot of work on and following this individual, intermarried with the Pakistan, with, with I'm sorry, with Afghans. He and his people um, understood the uh, Afghanistan and, and understood its tribal stru uh, structure. Probably one of the most infamous AQ leaders uh, amongst U.S. forces in Afghanistan. Absolutely, Caleb. It was a major, when he was captured, that was a, a major victory for the U.S. in northeastern Afghanistan. He was held for 11 years and was freed um, after the Taliban took control of, of Bagram. He and numerous al-Qaeda, Islamic State, and Taliban leaders, fighters, and operatives uh, were freed. Now we have a, the report notes, and, and I'll get, I'll, again, I'll read from the report. Here it goes, quote, According to one member state, Al-Qaeda link Katiba Umar Farouk, the parentheses red unit, was possibly being reactivated in Kunar and Nuristan provinces following the return of Abu Ikhlas al-Masri, Al-Qaeda operations commander who had been captured in Kunar province in 2010. It also reported that he had resumed leadership after his release following the Taliban takeover. Um, I'm going to comment really quickly on this. Look, we knew that al-Qaeda leaders were re-entering Afghanistan after the Taliban's victory. We've seen Amin al-Haq, who was Osama bin Laden's security chief. He got, a, he got a Taliban parade, a Taliban escort back to his home in Nangahar province. This was within a week or two after the, the fall of Afghanistan to the Taliban. We've seen individuals like uh, Abu Haq al-Turkistani, who is the leader of the Turkestan Islamic Party. Abdul Haq al-Turkistani also serves on al-Qaeda's Central Shura. That's not according to me, but a U.S. Uh, State Department designation from back in the 2000s. He, in, in May 2022, he, he, uh, he was seen in a video celebrating the Taliban victory. Um, and there's other Al-Qaeda leaders. I've heard from uh, some individuals in the know, some Americans, some Afghans that are telling me that the Al-Qaeda has uh, reinitiated training camps. And I think that this 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 to me is uh, the most explosive uh, part of the report. One of the most, not the most, but one of, I would say, the top three, two or three items in this report. It is, to me, evidence that Al-Qaeda, direct evidence that Al-Qaeda is active. In Afghanistan, its 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 networks are solid. It's very it's running training camps. It's setting up for the future. Edmund, what are your thoughts on Abu Iqlas al Masri's uh, return to the jihad in Afghanistan? Yeah, no, it, it is interesting, Bill, and um, I think you know it, it's 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 illustrative of the fact that uh, there is this close relationship between the Taliban and Al Qaeda. And the Taliban have done nothing to make uh, Afghanistan less permiss permissive space for Al-Qaeda or for uh, other allied um, terrorist groups. Uh, I guess the one thing I would say is I think, I think a little bit as we were just talking about with Syria, this is a potential threat. I don't think it's yet an actual threat. I don't think that Al-Qaeda yet has a developed attack capability either in Afghanistan or indeed in northwestern Syria. But the intent of al-Qaeda is still international projection of threat. And so the fact that the Taliban are allowing a person like this to return to the fray is troubling. 
Um, I should say, you, you, you quoted from the report, you said uh, Katiba Uma Farouk, the red unit. Uh, it's worth saying, isn't it, that Katiba is, uh, is a, a, a word actually meaning a military unit or a, yes. a battalion. Um, so it's referring to, it's referring to this. Uh, it's, it, it, in that respect, I, I, I just want to say that often with monitoring team reports, they're slightly fragmentary. And this is according to one member state. Sure. So uh, we shouldn't put too much of a load on this. The monitoring team has reported it because they think it's an important thing to flag and, and certainly what it indicates about the Taliban's uh, attitude to active activity by people like Abu Ikhlas. Um, but um, what exactly is the status of this unit? What exactly he's doing with it? And how threatening it could become, I think we have to accept that's not clear from the report. Well, I'm going to make one quick point to um, this. The report notes, it puts that red units in red unit in parentheses. And the Taliban also operates a red unit inside of Afghanistan. It's known to have foreigners within it. Um, the UN report isn't stating that this, that Iqlas al-Masri's red unit is part of the Taliban red, red unit. Um, the red unit is, is basically essentially the Taliban's shock troops or elite special forces units. These were the ones that were on the, uh, spearheading the assaults on district centers, military bases during the Taliban takeover uh, in 2021. Uh, again, we a German was captured, a German citizen was captured who was by Afghan forces, I believe in 2018 while operating with the red units. Uh, so uh, again, I'm not saying these are one in the same, but it is quite interesting. And it Al Qaeda fighters have been known to be fighting alongside the red unit as well. Um, we saw evidence of this and particularly in, in, after the Taliban assaulted Panjshir, there were numerous foreign fighters who were fighting alongside the red unit. So uh, just, again, I'm not saying they're one in the same. But like you said, uh, Edmund, it's, it's certainly something to flag. Oh, and I also want to point out, Caleb Caleb uh, brought the issue of uh, Abu Iqlis al-Masri to me. He got a chance to read the report. So, Caleb, thank you very much. Any any thoughts on uh, Abu Iqlis al-Masri, Caleb? I mean, nothing to continue what both of you, you know, artfully said. It's just, you know, I, I didn't serve in Afghanistan before my time. I, I just think that you know, thinking about all the people who did serve and all the intelligence community members of, you know, tracking this guy in Kunar, one of the deadliest places in all of Afghanistan during the war, you know, especially Korangal Valley, I can't imagine what they're feeling knowing that he might be back in the game of all the years they spent tracking this guy. And then when he was finally caught, you know, it, it's got to be, you know, just a shot in the gut of, damn, this guy, you know, spent all this time working against, and now he's back. It's, it's got to be a shitty feeling. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And it's not just him, it's others, but but he certainly sticks out. I'd like to make one additional point, um, Edmund. You know, the one thing why this is, if this is true, and I really don't have a reason to doubt it, we know he was freed. We know his commitment to the jihad. We know he's still in Afghanistan. This is, you know, we were given the name of a unit. I think it's highly likely that this is solid information. But as you noted, it is just one member state. But what makes this a threat, right? You know, and I think there's always a desire to de-link Al-Qaeda's global operations with its local operations. And we have to always remember that how did Al-Qaeda recruit from 
It ran, it funneled tens of thousands of foreign fighters into Afghanistan. It putting in the train, put them into training camp, and then it selected individuals to who had sp- particular skills to conduct, you know, the 9-11 attacks and, and other attacks, by the way. This is how Al-Qaeda does it. This is how they do it in other theaters. So this is what makes to someone like me makes it extremely dangerous. It's it's that potential that exists there, the training camps, the funneling and the fighters. And by the way, they could be Afghans. They could be Pakistanis. It doesn't make them any less dangerous or any less of a threat. So that's that's why something like this really catches my attention. Right. It's not just these Egyptians. Yeah, exactly. Completely agree. And I mean, just to, to underline your point, Bill, let me take you to paragraph one of the report where, you know, the monitoring team makes the point that at the moment, the threat is highest in uh, neighboring in, in in conflict zones and and immediate immediately neighboring areas. But the point that they make here, both Al Qaeda and ISIL Daesh continue to aspire to project threat beyond conflict zones. Member states are concerned about this and about violence and instability spreading deeper into Africa and indeed potentially outwards from Afghanistan. So yeah, they they, they get that. This is this is what the monitoring team is for. They're seeing this upstream and they're warning of the risk that it presents in the medium term. Yeah, absolutely. It's well said. Um, I am going to take a second to reintroduce my co-host, Caleb uh, Weiss. He's a senior analyst at Bridgeway Foundation and uh, our editor here at the Long War Journal. And Edmund Fitton-Brown, former British diplomat and ambassador to Yemen. And he served as the the last uh, previous coordinator for the United Nations Analytical support and sanctions and monitoring team. All right, let's uh, let's move on to the next topic. Uh, there's an interesting note in here about the Turkestan Islamic Party, which, uh, as I noted earlier, is an Al-Qaeda affiliate inside of in Central Asia, particularly inside of Afghanistan. And it notes that the Turkestan Islamic Party worked with Islamic State's branch in Afghanistan, which is known as Islamic State Khorasan. Um, and it worked with them to target Chinese interests in Kabul. But it also notes that the that the group as a whole still cooperated with Al Qaeda and the Pakistani Taliban. Uh, Caleb, I'm going to start with you. Uh, what do you think's going on here? Is this? Uh, do you think this is being directed from on high? Uh, you know, from someone like Abdul Haq al Turkistani, or do you think that elements of the group are are seeing a potential to work with the Islamic State? I don't think it's from Abdul Haq. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, he's likely still on Al Qaeda's main Shia council. Uh, you know, it has decades of experience working with Al Qaeda, so it seems unlikely that he would betray them like that. But you know, this is something we've noticed on the podcast several times before, of with how prominent the Islamic State is in Afghanistan and their mo, especially as it you know counters the Taliban, offers a lot of disaffected Central Asians, especially these Uyghurs a chance to actually do what they want to do, which in the case for TIP is, is attack China or Chinese interests. Uh, the Taliban is not going to allow that. The Taliban is, you know, trying to forge ties with China. The Islamic State offers that, that you know, that combat, that combative stance against China. So it seems more likely to me that it's elements of TIP that want to target China but can't due to the leadership, you know, embargoing that, but turning to the Islamic State who can offer that. Uh, that opportunity, um, but again, I, this is just you know, best case, but best guess. I don't know what actually is happening, um, but it just seems more likely to me that it's it's more disaffected members or certain elements of TIP rather than the group as a whole. Because the report does mention the, the group as a whole, 
is supporting the Pakistani Taliban. They're supporting uh, Ansarullah, the, the Tajik you know, jihadi group. They're supporting Al-Qaeda. So it, it seems more likely that it, it's disaffected or more ardent or more hardcore members that want to actually target China. Yeah, and I, I think this is the real potential for the Islamic State to poach from re- particularly the regional terrorist groups as the Taliban seeks ties with China, as it seeks tri- ties with Russia, as it tries to keep things calm with Uzbekistan, you know, you can, or, or Tajikistan. I think that's uh, that is a place where the Islamic State and they're they're doing it in their propaganda, as you noted to me the other day, Caleb. Um, astutely noted that. Oh yeah, I mean, the Islamic State course on is going on a full court press against China right now. I mean, they have their own magazine, and they are. I mean, it, it's the last few issues have been pretty much exclusively on the Uyghur issue and against China. Yeah. So I think it, the UN know, report notes it's published in Russian, Tajik, um, Uzbek, uh, and I forget the other languages, but those tell you that they're that. You know, I always noted that the voice of jihad, the Taliban's, which is now defunct, uh, ironically, it always it published in Dari, Pashto, Urdu, Arabic, and English. That was who they were trying to reach. Those were the most important parties they were trying to reach. When we look at what the Islamic State Khorasan is, who they're trying to reach, the fact that they're they're trying to to reach Russian speakers, Tajik speakers, Uzbek speakers. Um, I think that's very instructive as to who their audience is and who they're trying to poach from Al Qaeda. I just think they know as much as we do that that's going to be their best bet for Afghanistan is all these situations. Absolutely. Are there any thoughts on that, Edmund? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think you put your finger on it when you talked about the sort of the tension that exists between the Taliban's desire to, uh, you know, to break its isolation, especially with its neighbors, uh, you know, to build those relationships. And at the same time, it's ties uh, of, uh, you know, of, of, of kinship, uh, obligation, uh, friendship with uh, these terrorist groups inside the country. And uh, there is an analogy there to be made uh, between these different groups. Um, and, and also, let's, let's, let's include the TTP, the Pakistani Taliban, in that conversation, um, because you're talking about um, ISIL poaching. Well, of course, they were poaching on an industrial scale from TTP. They took they took uh, thousands from TTP. Um, so that dynamic is already very well established. And the same kind of problems that are arising between the Taliban and the government of Pakistan because of that unstable triangular dynamic uh, is likely also to be in play with TIM and the, and the Chinese government. If I'm going to comment really quick on the, the tensions between the Taliban and the, the Pakistani state, I think this is a manageable problem. We have to remember that the Taliban and the Afghan Taliban or the Pakistani state kept its close ties with the Afghan Taliban, even though it knew the Afghan Taliban supported and, and harbored the, uh, the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan. The, you know, I, I think this is a calculation made by those in power. I mean, the tens of thousands of Pakistani civilians Soldiers, policemen, government officials, even military officers. There were attacks in Rawalpindi, attacks in Islamabad, in Peshawar, and El- in, uh, Karachi, other major cities, against top military and intelligence installation. And yet those ties remained. I, I think, you know, the, the Pakistani state's desire for strategic depth in Afghanistan, strategic depth against India, again, the Pakistani state views. Afghanistan as as its um, 
as a pool of resources, as a place to retreat in the event of war with India. And it's cynically accepted the deaths of tens of thousands of its civilians and soldiers alike, um, knowing that the Afghan Taliban was supporting. So whatever tensions are, are arising now, we have to remember that a decade ago, it was far, far worse and it was acceptable, acceptable to the Pakistani state. With that, we'll move on to the Islamic State. Um, just today, uh, the U.S. military, U.S. Central Command announced that it killed a senior leader. His name is Ibrahim al-Khatani. I'm not aware. I haven't seen much about him, but they note that he was responsible for a prison break in Hasaka last year. That was a major, major battle between um, the uh was it the Syrian Democratic Forces, which is really the Turkestan is, uh, or the, the, the Kurdistan uh, Workers' Party. Um, and he's also been involved in other attacks on other detention centers. Um, so the, the top leadership of the Islamic State are largely unknown beyond their kunyas. Um, you've had many senior leaders arrested in Turkey or have been killed in U.S. Special Forces raid. So we're, it's unclear how this today's raid is going to impact global operations. I think one thing this report does identify is that it we do now know the name of the last leader of the Islamic State. Edmund, do you have any information that you want to share on that? Yeah, and I think this is important, uh, Bill. I mean, you know, of course, it can it can seem very, you know, it can seem very specialized. And I know that um, you know often people commenting on Islamic State are, are happy to use these these kunyas that really really uh, conceal far more than they reveal. Uh, what we had, of course, was the uh, replacement of um, Abu al-Hassan al-Hashimi al-Qurayshi uh, when he was killed, replaced by Abu al-Hussein or Husseini al-Qurayshi. Um, and the monitoring, I was always proud of the monitoring team. And again, they've done it again here, uh, insisting on getting to the bottom of what is the civil identity of this person, because that really matters. You know, you've got to know, you know, who is this person? What is their history? You know, were they were they were they in US custody at some point you know what was their operational track record what was their ideological track record and it's i was i was been a little bit sort of disappointed by how easily others just gloss over this as if it didn't matter and of course from the point of view of isil uh, what the report says which i think is interesting is maybe it doesn't matter from you know isil supporters they'll just throw their hands up and 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 and, and pledge allegiance to, to to whoever they're told is the new boss and i they could call him Abu Mickey Mouse if they wanted to, and, and it seems it seems that would, you know, that would that yeah they they would basically say oh there's still a leader and we pledge allegiance and the brand is strong enough for that. But uh, interestingly, the report what the report has done is that it has uh, firmly identified the deceased leader Abu Al Hassan as Nuruddin Abdul Illa Mutni, um, and and that will enable. Um, the monitoring team and others to go deep into the guy's actual record, his you know his his life before he was a, a terrorist, uh, his uh, his his history of detention or you know other um, other ways in which he came to the attention of the authorities. And I think that is I think that is important. Um, and they'll want to do the same with the new guy Abu Al Hussein. But at the moment, they're saying they don't know who Abu Al Hussein is. Yeah, and, and by the way, the Krakunya would be Abu uh, Mickey Almasi. So uh, just and and you made an interesting point. Were they were they detained in uh, by the U.S. because those those prisons in Iraq as well as in Afghanistan were essentially a university of jihad. Keep in mind, and we're talking about Abu Iqbal Almasri. 
Um, how does he walk out of there and then immediately retake over operations? Because he maintained his contacts, because he built a network within that prison, because very likely communicating with the outside. And um, yeah, I just thought that was an that that was a very interesting point that you noted. And and I, I would I think this also demonstrates a, a you know the point we made earlier about Al Qaeda, right? I think that both Al Qaeda and the Islamic State are mature enough at this point to they could deal with these leadership succession problems. I think those of us, in, many of us in the West, not those of us sitting in this podcast right now, speaking on this podcast right now, but you know, put a lot of emphasis on who is it and why aren't they naming him and why aren't they sharing his real name? I don't think they have to, you know, internally, they seem to be able to handle, both Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State seem to be handle, seem to be able to handle these leadership succession issues. Um, again, not without some problems, but not enough to cause a, a real problem within the groups. Any thoughts, Caleb? Nope. Okay. Both of you handled that well. <laughs> well, geez, that was too easy. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, just to, just to finish that off, uh, Bill, and underline what you just said, I think that's a key message in the report, that these brands are strong and they're resilient and, and they, they seem to have got beyond that issue of, you know, can you can you manage the succession from one uh, leader to the next. I think the risk uh, to both brands is just that you know they have both have this aspiration to mount higher profile attacks, and neither is doing it at the moment. They're, they're certainly keeping the the brand alive. They're doing lots in the conflict zones and just on the edges of the conflict zones or in the neighbourhoods. Um, but they are going to aspire to attack in the West because that's what really uh, has the impact that they're looking for. And that's why it's so important to continue to monitor them both. Oh, I, I concur. I, I think, you know, part of me wonders, particularly with Al Qaeda, if it's best that it focuses on the local to take the heat off it. One of the things I always felt the Islamic State did for Al Qaeda or benefit, benefited Al Qaeda is that it took a lot of heat off of Al Qaeda. Um, by its attacks inside the West. Just a theory here. I don't know this, you know, I'm not reading their internal communications, but, you know, the Islamic State has served as a lightning rod. Um, you know, I, I always felt that the overfocus on the Islamic State Khorasan province from 2016 to about 2019-20, you know, at the expense of allowing the Taliban to take over the country, you know, was a major mistake. And that benefited the Taliban, that benefited Al-Qaeda. And I think that has played out in certain other theaters. But yes, you know, the, the, the local to me, though, I always believe the local jihad is far more important to these groups. The, the external attacks, the attacks against the West and in India and other countries, yes, it's important for recruiting and messaging. But I think, it's, I think both of these groups have gotten to the point where they're getting you know, what do they want? What do they ultimately want? Would they rather have an attack in the U.S. or would they rather create emirates or provinces and then create their caliphate? I think the latter is the real goal. And the attacks against the West is merely a tactic to help it get there. I think you may have given us a good segue there, Bill, as well, because, uh, you know, we've, we've often seen fighting between uh, ISIL and uh, Al-Qaeda, uh, I, I, you know, in, in the affiliates, in the various uh, arenas where both are active. And one of the pitfalls um, that we must never fall into is imagining that you can co-opt one uh, group of extremists to help you defeat another group of extremists. And I think you, you pointed out that that, that risk uh, that existed um, in uh, Afghanistan, I think it was a pitfall. I think it was a mistake that many people made. Um, and, uh, you know, if people were to start making that mistake to think that al-Shabaab might help you to deal with ISIL Somalia, 
or that Jainan might help you to deal with uh, ISIL Greater Sahara, uh, that would be, as it was in Afghanistan, it would be a catastrophic mistake. I wasn't planning on going here, but I'm going to. Zalmay Khalizad, who was the last uh, U.S. representative for Afghanistan reconciliation, the architect of the Doha deal with the Taliban, unfortunately just can't bow out and keeps commenting on this. And this is what he wrote in, on Twitter today. ISIS, or the Islamic State, is the common enemy of the Taliban and the international community. Cooperation against ISIS can be a key part of the future of future relations. He's, of course, talking about the Taliban in Afghanistan. Among the options available, the completed implementation of the Doha agreement is the best way forward. I mean, you still have U.S. influential policymakers, decision makers calling for us to fight terrorists with terrorists. The Taliban are terrorists. The Islamic State are terrorists. It's as you perfectly noted, and I actually tweeted this out in response, that you don't fight terrorists with terrorists. And that's what individuals like Azami Khalizade just seem to have forgotten at some point in time. I mean, this is the uh, the IR student in me. I do have a, a master's in that. But like, how much of that is uh, like a holdover from Cold War mentality of yeah. using all these different insurgent groups for you know our own nefarious or Machiavellian ends? It's the same thing. Same thing as like what we did in Nicaragua or Central America as a whole. It usually doesn't work. I mean, listen, not being in, uh, you know, not getting my degree there, I, you know, maybe that's an advantage because it's just never worked well. Um, sure, we defeated the Nazis and we got the Soviet Union, right? I mean, I, I've, I've just never, you know, the enemy of my enemy usually is my enemy. But hey, here we are. Well, in, in the case of the Taliban and others, they're very explicitly um, hostile. And, you know, we've had, we've had Afghanistan Talibanized. If, you, if we imagine a world in which you have a Talibanized Somalia, a Talibanized uh, Mali and Burkina Faso, uh, Talibanized Yemen, for example, uh, this is not going to be a world that is uh, comfortable for Western interests. Yeah, well said, gentlemen. All right, let's move on to the, I think this is one of the top two or three items that were in the report that I had mentioned earlier. Uh, several member states noted that Islamic State's Al-Qaeda office is sending $25,000 a month to Islamic State Khorasan province, which of course is in Afghanistan, via crypto. Um, yeah, very, very interesting. And I'm going to add one more thing to this. Um, that report also notes that the car office is raising about $100,000 a month. So where is that other $75,000 going? That's uh, something to ponder as well. But uh, Caleb, you uh, brought that to my attention as well. Um, really, I, th I think that's quite explosive. That A, that it's sending that much money to Afghanistan. That's a, that money goes very far in a poor country like Afghanistan and that they're, they're leveraging crypto to do so. Yeah, no, I, I think that might be the most interesting thing in the entire report to me. Um, and, you know, one thing we do need to mention, and this is something we talked about, you know, before we hit record, is that, you know, the leader of Al-Qarar, or one of the leaders of Al-Qarar, uh, Bilal al-Sudani, who was this important Islamic State leader, who was basically, you know, facilitating, directing, coordinating, uh, you know, money transfers to Islamic State affiliates in Central Africa and Mozambique and South Africa. You know, he's dead now. Uh, you know, how much does that impact Al-Qarar's ability to, you know, generate all these funds and transfer them? For these crypto exchanges, you know, I don't know, that's something to be seen, but uh, a significant development nonetheless that he's now gone uh, and, you know, Akrar became 
sort of a you know important hub for the Islamic State, not just in Africa, but around the world, as we see with Afghanistan. Uh, and then there's also reports, you know, they may be sending money to Yemen. I mean, so it, it, outsized role that the Islamic State branch of Somalia is playing for sure, but to be determined how well that goes now that Sudani's dead. Yeah, and Sudani was a he was a member of Shabab before he, he turned, and he's a specially designated global terrorist. What year? Do you remember what year he was? Twenty twelve. Twenty twelve. Yeah, and you know this is an important point. You you raised the question. Well, can anyone pick up for him? This is one of my, you know, deep bench. <laughs> do I know the answer to that? No, but what I likely suspect, he's been in this business for a long time. He's had underlings who he's very likely trained, who can very likely, you know, they've learned the tricks of his trade and very, it, it's highly likely these individuals could step in and do his job. So is it important to kill right. someone like Bilal Sudani? Absolutely. Yes. I always, you know, I make the, the targeting issue it, it, to me, it's necessary, but unfortunately it's not sufficient. I mean, that's the that's the bad thing about this war is that there there are going to be other people's waiting in the lurch to you know to succeed these people. But like the main thing with Sudani also is he's been in the game since 2007. He joined Shabab uh, that year, became a you know foreign fighter coordinator, recruiter, facilitator, whatever. Uh, you know he's made connections all across Africa and and the world. You know the main thing that they're going to have to work to replace is that personal tie that Sudani yes. had. Right. Uh, you know, other people can step in and and you know hit the button to transfer money, but do they have the personal connections to you know develop and establish all these ties elsewhere or around the world or especially in Africa that Sudani had? Uh, TBD. Don't know. Don't know uh, if he was a smart leader. He would have been making those connections for his underlings. Um, we don't again. We don't know the answer. But what I've what I've watched over the years is that you know, lo looking at the targeting, particularly tracking the targeting of Al Qaeda's central leadership in Pakistan from 2005 up until it pretty much died in 2018. Al Qaeda really didn't have a problem replacing all the number threes, all the general managers and all the leaders, regional leaders in Afghanistan, Pakistan, military commanders. And um, it, be, you know why? Because they had a heat, and we learned this from the bin Laden documents, that the number three, or what was often described as the general manager, he had a staff, he had two deputies, each deputy had a number of deputies. There were guys, you know, they had, you know, it's outlined in the documents. It's quite interesting. And for someone like Sudani, I have to imagine that he very likely established something for the Al-Qaeda office. If he was smart, he did. I'm making, you know, and if he was stupid then and didn't, then, yeah, it's going to be a really big problem for the Islamic well, State. Well, I mean, one thing to consider is that, you know, the U.S. did report that 10 other Sudanese members of the Islamic State, uh, Somalia, were killed alongside him. Yeah. You know, so, whether or not that was his bodyguards or assistants or if they were other members of Al-Qarrar's, you know, again, also undetermined. But it's possible that, you know, some of those guys were also those underlings sure. that he was training. So, I mean, it, it could have also we knocked out a, you know, a whole section of Al-Qarrar that's going to take, you know, a long time to reestablish. Again, don't know, uh, 2BD. Um, and another thing important with that raid is the U.S. also said they captured hard drives, laptops, yes. whatever, that needs to be declassified, <laughs> you know, exploit it to the best ability and then declassify it just like the bin Laden docs. Because the only way we're going to learn about the true extent of Al-Qarrar and what they're doing is if that's public knowledge. 
I would argue they should have kept quiet about seizing those hard drives, right? Well, I mean, fair to, I mean, they need to exploit whatever they yeah. can in the immediate yeah. future, but like at some point they need to declassify all that. So us analysts and researchers can also, you know, contribute to the wider knowledge of what the Islamic State is actually doing or what Akrar itself is actually doing across Africa. Because that's a missing piece that I think people are, are, are not paying attention to of, you know, the Islamic State's growing in DRC and most, and a lot of that is tied to Al-Qarar. What is actually going on behind the scenes? This is where the UN report, which I, I'm, as you all know, like Caleb, I, I'm sure I could speak for you as well. Big fan, because I'm looking forward to reading the next report and the report after and the report after to see about how much do they believe Al-Qarar is sending to Islamic State Khorasan province to and elsewhere. If we see those numbers are the same or we see them, then maybe that raid wasn't as impactful as thought. If it increases, that's a sign. But if it decreases, then I think we could assume that that was very likely a successful raid. Uh, Edmund, your thoughts on the on this portion of the report on and comments on al-Sudani? Yeah, I mean, I agree what you said about it being really important, uh, particularly in the light of the uh, al-Sudani uh, raid. I think, it, you know, that, that that's that's what gives this enormous resonance. Um, just on the point about, um, you know, where you said necessary but not sufficient to have um, uh, kinetic uh, CT raids, um, effectiveness will often depend a lot on the sort of the unique skill set of the person who is eliminated. And uh, it is just worth remembering Assyri in Yemen, you know, the great bomb technician, um, that when he was killed, that, 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 that really did hamstring it, it hobbled the threat from al-Qaeda in Yemen it didn't destroy it didn't eliminate it completely um, but it's it's extraordinary the degree to which people's preoccupation with AQAP went down sure. uh, once that particular threat that Assyri uh, posed was removed so that was interesting um, out with Sudani who knows um, I'm very again you know very proud of what the monitoring team does in terms of breaking information about these structures and uh, this is one where I feel particularly gratified because it seems to have been uh, what the monitoring team was learning about a year ago and surfaced not in this report, but the one six months ago about ISIL's regional structures and the, the, the work of the Al-Qarar office uh, seems even more important in the, light, in the light of what happened with Al-Sudani. Um, and as Caleb said, you know, so important to, to say that Al-Qarar office is part of a, a sort of a eastern, central, southern Africa network uh, and is particularly associated with the ISIL presences in Mozambique and in DRC. Um, and that was how we first saw it as being primarily about being a regional hub. And it is a regional hub. But what we realized and reported in that previous report, the 30th report that was published in July, uh, was that it was also, uh, it had become a financial hub. And the financial hub had resonance not just in uh, that part of Africa, but also outside, uh, more broadly in Africa and outside Africa as well. Uh, and we also said uh, in that previous report that it was sending money to Afghanistan. At the time, I remember feeling this is a stretch. You know, I'm surprised at this. How is this working? And why, why Somalia? You know, what's the what's the particular sort of um, you know uh, advantage, the comparative advantage that they have in Somalia that's helping them to either raise or transfer or both money for Afghanistan. Um, and then th when, 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 when we learned of the al-Sudani raid, I was just fascinated because it was clear that what we had reported was accurate, but actually it was also only part of the story. There was more to it than I 
than I suspected. And clearly the US was ready to draw a direct line uh, from uh, al-Sudani in Somalia, actually to terrorist act actions taking place in Afghanistan, and then to and then to sort of draw the conclusion and to take kinetic action in response. So this this ISIL regional structure is is more than theoretical. It's a it's a serious thing, but it isn't well understood. We don't know the detail of how it works. Um, and you know the report I think says uh, you know it, it's. It, they they extort the shipping industry and illicit taxation, but you know that that to me sort of is um, it, it's intriguing, but it doesn't really explain this uh, how this works. And clearly, we need to know a lot more about how it works. And 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 like Caleb, I kind of hope that uh, I kind of hope that now that the operational secrecy that the Americans will have guarded in order to take out Sudani uh, is no longer needed. I'm hoping that there will be quite a lot of information that will become available. Um, about how this worked and, and, and indeed about what the risks are going forward. And Edwin, just a quick FYI, Caleb and I were talking earlier, and we were noting that the information on the IS offices in the previous report, that was one of the more fascinating things that we had seen in a long time. So yeah, um, can't sing the praises enough of the sanction and monitoring team for identifying the, these important facts for us. All right, we're going to move. We got two items to discuss here. This first one we're going to discuss is the idea that IEDs are becoming more advanced, both in Mozambique and the Democratic Republic of uh, the Congo. Member states aren't ruling out the possibility of sending Islamic State trainers to the terrorist groups operating in there, in these areas. Um, Edmund, can you talk a little bit about this? Uh, Africa, of course, is becoming increasing, we would argue, the most kinetic area of the jihad. And it's ironic because Afghanistan was one of the, the most but that's settled down with the Taliban victory. So what do you think about the ideas uh, or this, this, the report that IEDs are becoming more sophisticated? It's an interesting report, and, and I have no reason to disbelieve what it says. Um, of course, this, is, you know, th this, this links back to what we were just talking about with the Al-Qurar office. It's the Al-Qurar office in Somalia that is linked with, uh, with the um, um, ADF, if we want to call them that, uh, but they, you know, they want to call themselves... Um, ISIL Central Africa province uh, in DRC, uh, or and then of course you know, we talked about Mozambique. Uh, whether that's ISIL Central Africa province, although the, these days I think ISIL prefer to refer to it as ISIL Mozambique. Um, but you know it, these are all linked together, um, and there are some interesting dynamics that the report is revealing. One of them is that the is that is that ISIL in Mozambique or um, ASWJ as, as it's referred to by its, its local name, Atlas Sunnah al Jama, um, has really struggled um, over the last year and more uh, as regional forces uh, got involved and the government of Mozambique um, uh, made a judicious use of its alliances to bring in uh, reinforcements, counterterrorism reinforcements. Um, ASWJ has struggled and they've lost a lot of people and, and the, 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 the report gives figures for their numbers of fighters which are decimated from what they were so that's interesting um, and the dynamic has been in the opposite direction in DRC where, uh, where, where, where uh, ADF or ISCAP has got stronger um, and uh, it's you know again there's a lot of counter-terrorism pressure and to some degree it's been dispersed to a wider area but it is also making itself felt in a across a wider area. Um, but, you know, you could say that the sort of the fortunes of those two um, ISIL presences or ISIL-affiliated um, ISIL uh, groups um, have uh, gone in slightly in opposite directions, down in Mozambique, up in 
DRC. Uh, the report doesn't talk very much about foreign terrorist fighters, but there are foreign terrorist fighters, which the, the, which the monitoring team has previously spoken about in detail um, in uh, both, both in uh, Mozambique and in DRC. Uh, and particularly in DRC, some of these uh, foreign terrorist fighters are very well-established, hardened uh, international terrorists. Um, and, and that, I think, is important because, again, it's a, it, it, it can be an indicator of capability. And that's why I'm coming back to this point you're making about IEDs and, 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 and capabilities, um, because foreign terrorist fighters can bring in capabilities just as trainers and instructors can bring in capabilities. And it, you, you could indeed have someone who, who is both a trainer and instructor and a foreign terrorist fighter, of course. And, and that, that brings me to a point which the report makes repeatedly, which is about the absence of con command and control. This seems to be a fairly widely agreed view that ISIL is not telling these people what to do, that you, you don't have uh, somebody in, uh, in Syria or Iraq uh, or even in Somalia uh, sort of just sort of saying, right, this is what has to happen, and then making it happen in Mozambique or DRC. It's more that the ISIL structures seem to exist to facilitate and assist. And in return, of course, what the ISIL affiliates are doing is they're providing uh, fodder for the ISIL global propaganda machine, because these operations then feed ISIL's ability to say, look, we're, we're doing this all over the world. You know, we're still there in spite of all the um, uh, all of the attacks that we've had to suffer. Uh, we're still doing the business. And so I think when we're looking for, you know, what is the meaning of the Al-Qarar office in terms of what's happening in Mozambique or what's happening in, uh, in uh, DRC? Uh, it's probably to do with finance, but of course it may also be to do with helping to facilitate the arrival of instructors and or foreign terrorist fighters who are then increasing the capability of the local affiliates. Yeah, and I'm going to quickly read to the report and get to our last item. Uh, here's what it says about that. The, in, in the Democratic Republic of, of the Congo, the improvised explosive device techniques used by ADF have advanced with increased use in cities, carrying bigger payloads and better triggers, indicating the involvement of outside trainers. So it seems like they don't, they, how, the member states aren't saying they have direct evidence of it, but the evidence is the more, the, the sophistication. So, and Edmund, you, uh, you touched upon the issue in, in uh, Islamic State's Mozambique province. The report notes that it's been uh, reduced to about 280 fighters. I, I, I'll tell you what, I, I think this is one of the areas where I would disagree. I'm curious what you think about this, Caleb. But um, if you look at the, the report, it, it, it seems to be playing, you know, 280 fighters, but fighting in multiple districts in, in three provinces and more than 1 million people interna internally displaced. This is where I get a little bit critical um, in, in these reports on the number of fighters. I remember reading years ago, the estimate of the, the Taliban was somewhere around 75,000. I don't think 75,000 beats 300,000 Afghan security forces backed by the US troops and always felt that number was far, far underestimated. And I think this, this kind of goes to different areas. But again, I will say that it's a benchmark for us to discuss and, um, Caleb, what are your thoughts on that? I, I do have one thought to go back on the ADF discussion of, you know, sure. of the bombs getting you know, more sophisticated. Uh, I mean, what I can say is that, you know, there's been suicide bombings uh, and regional bombing plots across Central Africa and Rwanda and Uganda, and especially in, you know, uh, 
the, the capital of North Kivu, uh, DRC's North Kivu province, Goma. There was a suicide bombing there last April. Uh, certainly something is happening where the ADF is getting bigger and better and more sophisticated bombs. And that seems to indicate that, that the Islamic State is either providing money, resources, training, whatever, you know, working on that, you know, this uh, more information needs to be be gathered on that, but it seems to be indicate that as such. Um, but on, you know, this Islamic State Mozambique, I tend to agree that it might be higher than 280. I, I, I don't know what it actually is, but just given where they're actually fighting and the, the scale of the conflict, uh, especially as the conflict moves away from the more traditional areas into you know further away districts from uh, the coastal cities where they've historically been based, uh, you know you are in Nampua, you are uh, in the Asa province now, or they try to be in the Asa provinces outside of Cabo Delgado. It, it seems to be higher than that, but again, I, I don't really have the best insight. It's just you know logic would tell me that given the scale of the conflict, it probably is more than three hundred fighters. Um, but you know how many are you know part-time fighters? How many are full-time? Or you know, is this a static number? Does it rotate per month or per week? I don't know. Let me say, I think this this is a very good point that you're making, Bill. And having spent five years looking at these kind of figures, um, you know, I ended up feeling that uh, they were only ever very approximate. Um, and you would have disagreement not just between different member states who would give you different figures, uh, but you'd have disagreement over the definition. You know, what is a fighter? Is it somebody actually standing there with a gun? Is it everybody that they feed or pay? Um, do you end up including dependents, you know, many of whom are, you know, not, not fighters, not maybe not capable, maybe not even willing? Um, and so uh, I think the absolute numbers themselves are not particularly helpful, um, but the trends are useful. And I think the trend, the suggestion that there's a downward trend in Mozambique is probably right. And I think that's down to a number of things. I mean, there's been, you know, there have been people killed and captured. Uh, if you may recall that there was a big problem over famine at one point, they, uh, they, had, to, they had to just abandon a lot of their dependents because they couldn't feed them. Um, and, uh, and of course, you do have a sort of a changed dynamic in terms of the increased counter-terrorist resources deployed against them. Uh, I wouldn't, I certainly wouldn't sort of um, stake my life on the, on the exact numbers, but I think, I think if we're talking about a, a downward trend, I think that's interesting in itself. And I think it is credible. Uh, whereas we have what looks like an upward trend in DRC, including of course, uh, caused by another very large jailbreak uh, of whom the majority uh, then joined ADF. That's a, a great point. I mean, and, I, and I'm not trying to be critical of, of the report. I mean, I've realized that, you know, that the sanctions and monitoring team are um, gathering information from member states and passing it along often. And there's a urine analysis as well. But uh, to me, it's important. It's a benchmark for us to have this type of discussion to try to analyze, um, the, as you noted, analyze the trends. And uh, with that, I think uh, we will conclude today's episode of Generation Jihad. Edmund. Thank you, as always, for joining us. It's always a pleasure to have you on. Um, you know, please join us again soon. We, we always look forward to your insights. Thanks very much. It's great to be with you, and I look forward to the next time. Great, Edmund. You have a great week. Catch you soon. And Caleb, thanks again for co-hosting um, with Generation Jihad. A great discussion, as always. Absolutely. Um, it's cool that it's finally back to, or it's finally referred to as co-host. I know we've been playing around with that for a while. And the little in-joke of, am I? But it <laughs> feels, feels good that it's now official. 
we, we like to tease the audience a little bit. And sometimes we come through and sometimes we don't. All right, everyone, thanks again and for joining us for today's episode of Generation Jihad. Just a reminder, you can find us on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and leave us a review, preferably a positive one. Thanks again, and we'll see you all again soon.